The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I am totally stoked we are here tonight with my guest, Dr. Darsha Narvaez. Dr. Narvaez, welcome. Thank you so much. Dr. Narvaez is a very interesting woman. She has done so many different things. And I'm thinking of, for example, she has done everything from publish poetry to be on the uh White House Conference on Character in the Community, and everything in between. She is a frequent blogger. Uh, Her blog is Moral Landscapes at Psychology Today. And she has been one of five psychologists to be invited to speak at the White House Conference on Character in the Community, as I just mentioned. Her work emphasizes moral development over the lifespan and the interaction of implicit and explicit processes in moral functioning. She emphasizes the importance of the early experience in shaping moral capacities, and of course her work is on the evolved developmental niche for young children, and here's why she's on this show, because she really addresses natural birth. And if you haven't joined us for the show recently, you know that last week the show was with um, Barbara Hotelling and we talked about many strategies for achieving a natural birth as opposed to um, cesarean or assisted birth. Uh, Dr. Narvaez also talks about extensive on-demand breastfeeding, constant touch, caregiver responsiveness, free play, and the need for multiple adult caregivers and extensive positive social support. Now, as you can probably imagine, we could probably spend an hour talking on any one of these topics. Dr. Narvaez, of course, is very well-rounded in this. She has so many publications that I can't even begin to list them, but suffice it to say she has a list as long as your arm, including several books, and we'll make that available on the show notes. Dr. Narvaez, I'd like to start with, please, uh, we hear so much about your relation or your uh, promotion, I should say, of primal parenting. Can you give us the definition of primal parenting? Yes, primal parenting is about going back to what we have known for most of our history as human beings uh, in terms of what young children especially need, but children generally, 
And it's a very intensive parenting that evolved with the social mammals over 30 million years ago. Mm, And humans uh, intensified it further and made a few changes. But otherwise, it's really pretty established in uh, in the animal kingdom. And it really matches up with the maturational schedule of the child to optimize development. So when I first encountered that term, the first thing that I thought of was, Okay, so I I know the root word here. I know about primary, and I know about primates, and I know that human beings are primates, and it, it, well, large primates. I was also thinking about what somebody told me, and I don't know if there's any truth to this, but something like the mother gorilla never takes her hands off from her uh, offspring. Do you know if that's true? But whether it is or isn't, does that support one of the things that you're trying to get at here with this whole idea of primal parenting. Yes, we are uh, primates. And of the primates, uh, I have in my latest book, uh, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, have a chart that shows how uh, long and the kind of intensive parenting all the primates provide their young. And humans need more of it than anyone else. And part of that is lots of holding and touching, pretty constant uh, in the first year of life uh, and throughout life, lots of touching. Earlier this year, we had Dr. Niels Bergman on, and his uh, word was zero separation. Would that support what you are promoting? Yes. Yes. Uh, your blog today was pretty interesting. You talked about the relationship of caveman parenting and mental health. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so I I use the term caveman parenting because a few years ago when we were publishing information about our childhood studies, uh, a journalist changed the title to caveman and the uh, story went around the world so much so that someone who was on the subway in Scotland found this little paragraph about caveman parenting. Uh and. So that's why I used it today. But it is the primal parenting. It's evolved parenting. It's uh, what we as uh, social mammals need. Well, you know, that's so interesting because, as you know, I teach many uh, courses in lactation. And when people ask me about formula, one of the things that I say is, seriously now, do you think that cave woman went down to the Walmart and bought formula? (laughs) The answer is no, of course not. And so I I really believe that when we start to conceptualize ourselves as we are able to provide for our young in a completely, uh, we have everything we need in order to provide for our young. That's my philosophy. Am I too far off? No. And that's part of, uh, I agree with you. That's part of primal parenting. We have it in us to do uh-huh. these things that babies and young children need. It's just that we get veered off. We get uh, pushed away from those uh, primal kinds of instincts that we otherwise have. Talk to us about the mental health thing. And the reason I ask that is I'm aware of studies that have shown that, for example, uh, babies who are breastfed are less likely to be abandoned by their mothers. Babies who are breastfeeding, who, who have been breastfed, are le- less likely to grow up to be violent. Uh, I'm sure you know these studies, but anyway, help us to understand where that fits with uh, the whole idea of parenting and mental health. May I go through the uh, practices of uh, oh, 
Definitely. First, before we go to the yes. outcomes. Yes, sure. <laughs> Just so people know what we're talking about when we say primal parenting or caveman parenting or evolved parenting. There are several, maybe uh, six or seven characteristics, uh, depending on how you count them, and probably more than this. But we do, we're examining in our research these particular ones, and that's uh, soothing birth experience, so not a cesarean and not separating mom and baby at birth, no painful procedures at birth, right? So uh, zero separation is a good way to put it. Uh, another one is breastfeeding, and that uh, in it in our um, uh, cousins, the small band hunter-gatherers, that's the kind of society that represents 99% of human history. In those societies, uh, breastfeeding is uh, lasts at least till age four. The average yeah. age of weaning is four years old. And we know there's a reason for that. The breast milk provides all the immunoglobulins you need to build the immune system, and the immune system isn't finished till about age five. Mm-hmm. And then there's touch, lots of positive touch, um, and each of these practices is linked to a neurobiological development. Certain things that are happening at that time, that point, uh, time point in a child's life and development. So, with, yeah, go ahead. When, when you say neurological, uh, neurobiological development, do I understand you to say this is about how the brain fires? It's uh, how the brain wires itself because wires. Uh, we're. Uh, and uh, fires, I mean, it's all related. We are dynamic sure. systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so early experience matters for what happens later. It sets us up for a particular trajectory. And we're born really 18 months early compared to other animals. We should be in the womb another 18 months. Don't tell oh. them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Mothers usually say there is eight months of maternity, and that last month is eternity. <laughs> oh, right. I know. It's hard. Uh, but uh, 18 months because we uh, the child cannot forge forge for its own food, cannot move around very uh, successfully or at all for many months. And so we really should treat a child like they're uh, in the womb, an exterogestation, an external womb, for many, many months after birth. Because so, the neurobiology is still developing in all sorts of systems. Before I interrupted you, you were going through the list. You said soothing birth, no painful experiences, breastfeeding, uh, positive touch. Yes. Were there more? Yes. Uh, uh, also, free play. The baby's oh. ready to play from birth. There's okay. this companionship kind of back and forth, reciprocity, we call it. Uh, and uh, these are a lot of things to cover for a baby, and so multiple adult caregivers is also part of our heritage. That's what's rather unique for humans. There are a few other species that have multiple caregivers, but most of them don't. Most of them just have the mother and baby. Uh, But humans, because we need so much when we're young, uh, multiple caregivers can help provide that. Yes. You know, this is so interesting to me personally. My mother was born and raised in Italy, and when she came to the States and was trying to put her baby under the covers with her, what we would now call skin to skin, of course, the, oh, the nurse gave her all sorts of flack for that. And I'm also thinking that she said to me, honey, I, I don't understand what you teach women about breastfeeding. There's nothing to teach. Nobody taught me. And I said, well, no, actually, you were taught your whole life because you saw your mother, your sisters, your cousins. And of course, you know, the, the baby kind of got passed from hand to hand in what she always referred to as the old country. And so you're saying that that's a lot closer to that ideal of uh, primal parenting, really. That's, 
That's right. Other countries do a little bit better on many of these things than we do uh-huh. in the States. So there's two more characteristics. One is responsiveness to the needs of the baby so the baby doesn't get distressed. Because uh-huh. in that early, in those early months especially, the uh, stress response system is getting set up, how it's going to manage and, and whether it works or not. The baby doesn't have self-regulation capacities, and the mother and father and other caregivers provide external regulation for the child and train up their systems, all sorts of systems. Okay. And then the last one is a positive climate. The child needs to feel that they can have a positive influence on others and have that positive reaction with what they do, for example. Yes. As I hear you talking, I'm thinking about all of the, what I call noxious stimuli that we give to babies uh, immediately after birth. Um, I'm thinking of, for instance, giving the baby the shot of vitamin K and all of that sort of thing. But I'm also thinking about the fact that there's so much separation and even just today, as we were talking about the upcoming show, one of the women in my office was saying, I was saying to the nurse, Where, where's my baby? Where'd you take my baby? And you're telling us, as I understand it, that these separations have bigger consequence than what is just seen at that particular moment. Am I reading you right? You are correct. And I think Niels oh. Bergman has uh, points this out in multiple animal studies where they can do experiments on the young, the offspring, the newborns separating them from the mother, and then they find that, whoa, it affects their development later. They don't see it maybe immediately, but later on in adolescence, they're very awkward or they're not very skilled or they're kind of lonely and, you know, those kinds of things. Yes, Yes. wow. Uh, Thank you so much. That was a wonderful and enlightening list. Uh, When we come back, we'll be talking about more of this. In the meanwhile, I would like to thank our sponsor today, Mama Va a modular suite offering nursing mothers a safe, clean, and beautifully designed space to pump or to nurse while they're away from home. Please, all of you, could you visit mamava, that's M-A-M-A-V-A dot com today. Don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with Dr. Narsha Naves. We will be right back after this short break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you enjoy listening to Marie Biancuso? Do you think your staff would enjoy listening to Marie? As the past president of Baby Friendly USA, Marie currently offers baby-friendly training programs, online only, live only, or a combination of live and online education. If you are tired of listening to a boring lecture in a dark room, watching bullet point slides with a brief chance for questions at the end, come and enjoy a truly interactive learning online or live program with Marie. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894 to find an option that works for your staff. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. 
Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that too through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso, your host for Born to be Breastfed on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. I'm here today with Dr. Darsha Narvaez. And before we went to break, Dr. Narvaez was talking to us about the whole concept of primal parenting, and she gave us a list of several characteristics as related to the uh, primal parenting. And she very sweetly said to me, is it okay if I talk about the characteristics before we talk about the outcome? Because I posed the question about mental health. Okay, so help us to know how all of this fits with mental health. All right. Well, each of these practices has a known effect on the neurobiological development of the child. So, for example, breast milk uh, facilitates serotonin receptor development, uh, other neurotransmitter systems. And we know serotonin is related not only to intelligence, but to not getting depressed when you have a a good system. Uh, We know that, for example, touch has to do with, uh, uh, there's been maybe 20-some years of studies with rats in, uh, and they have uh, similar brain structures to human brain structures, uh, so we can um, argue, and there's been some evidence that these these findings apply to humans. Uh, in in rat life, if you're a, a young rat and you have a very high nurturing mother in the first ten days of life, which is the equivalent of six months for humans, uh, the genes that control anxiety get turned on properly. Whoa. If you, if you have a mother that's not very nurturing, and for a rat that means lots of licking, for humans it would be lots of carrying, okay? Mm-hmm. You don't have to lick your babies. <clears throat> and if you have a, a low nurturing mother in the rat life, you, those genes to control anxiety never get turned on properly. And so for the rest of your life, you are going to be anxious with new situations. And this, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, if it's your uh, adopted mother or your uh, birth mother, this, there's the same effect. And so we know that if you don't get lot the uh, proper touch and caring in early life, you're more likely to be anxious as an adult. Those are wow. s- just some examples of how these parenting practices matter. 
And in the study that uh, is in press now that we just put out a press release today and I wrote a blog about it with some students, uh, it has to do with uh, examining or asking um, adults to uh, recollect their childhood and whether they were touched affectionately, uh, corporally punished, which is not a good thing, um, whether they felt supported um, and whether they felt embedded socially, uh, supported in the, in the family uh, through activities and things. And we asked them about their childhood experiences, and we find then that it's also then related to, and we can show these pathway models, that the more of these parenting practices you got when you were a child, you're more likely to have a secure attachment to others as an adult. You're more likely to have good mental health so not anxious or depressed, and you're more likely to be able to take the perspective of other people, so, you know, understand, you know, walk in their shoes kind of thing, and then you're more likely to have more of an open-hearted morality of being uh, open to others and cooperative and relational. Then there's the negative path. You had low, um, low amounts of these things in childhood that you recollect. You're more likely to have an insecure attachment, more men- uh, worse mental health, uh, more personal distress in social relationships, and more self-protective morality in the end. Uh, I'm just sitting here thinking in a very simple way. Uh, obviously, I'm not a psychologist. I'm I, I'm really just a simple nurse. But um, I'm thinking that we now have a whole generation of kids who are largely formula-fed. I believe that 1971 was about the nadir of... Uh, when uh, breastfeeding was occurring. And I'm also thinking that now we have a whole generation of people who are on antidepressants. And I'm just wondering uh, if that is somehow related. That is pretty fascinating. This kind of brings me to the opposite end of the spectrum, at least in my small mind, which is to me, breastfeeding is about nurturing. It's about it's the ultimate in being with your baby, having skin to skin contact, uh, really being entirely present to that baby. And what I hear a lot is that parents will pick up the baby to breastfeed the baby, and somebody else will will criticize the mother and say, oh, for heaven's sakes, just let her cry it out. She's just crying. She's not hungry. And, of course, I do believe that babies can cry for reasons other than hunger. I, I, I'm, I'm good with that. But I don't think that crying it out is the way to go. Can you address that? Right. I uh, What I use for a baseline for making decisions about what our uh, child care practices should be, as I mentioned this earlier, the small band hunter-gatherer communities around the world that anthropologists have studied, they've identified these same practices. Even though these groups don't contact each other, they do the same kinds of things. So those primal parenting practices I mentioned. And one of the things that's notable in these communities is that babies do not cry. They might get a little fussy uh, a little more, um, you know, start to wiggle and get yeah, uncomfortable yeah. in those first yeah. few months, but they do not cry, and you don't want them to be crying because the predators will know you're there, and they'll just come along oh, <laughs> and pursue oh. you. So we have evolved to not let babies cry, and somehow we've got this idea in the States that, no, that's normal, and you don't know what they want until, unless you, you know, they're, they're going to cry to tell you. No, 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 no. What they do is they start to wiggle and start to make a face. That's when you 
enter in and try to make them comfortable. As I said, again, they're 18 months. They should be kept calm, like they're in a very happy womb. And mm-hmm. then you can start to help them grow and, and learn other things. But in those 18 months, I would try to keep that child very calm because then they're going to have a pleasant personality. They're going to be much more at ease. No matter what happens in their life, they can handle it. They're going to have that kind of uh, resilience that we like to see, but they're also going to be kind to others and not mm. be self-focused. Ooh. Again, the message I'm hearing is that these things have a far-reaching effect, good or bad. It's not just what happens at the moment. You made a very interesting comment on your blog. You said, babies should not be crying for any extended length of time. Could you tell us what you would define as an extended length of time? Well, probably more than a a minute um, that you just don't hear that in these communities. And instead, if the baby starts to make a noise in the, the anthropologist report, uh, the, the adults will say, pick up the baby, pick up the baby, uh, because ah. they know that if you let a baby uh, cry too long, they're starting to make a dis- disagreeable personality, and they're going to have trouble later, because you've, whatever that baby practices in those first months, that's what they're going to keep doing. So if you're going to get them practiced at you know screaming to get their needs met, well, welcome to tantrums. Welcome to you know uh, the drama queen. Yeah. Uh, that's what you're making of their personality. So parents have much more power than they are told these days to make a personality. And uh, we've forgotten. Uh, in these um, small band hunter-gather communities, the adults are very calm, generous, kind, compassionate, very different kind of human being than we, what we see in the States today all over the place. Very fearful, uh, erratic, yeah. Yeah. Uh, stress-reactive adults that we see too much of is part of... Uh, the result is from our the way we're raising babies in part. Absolutely. I, I, I guess, oh, my brain is thinking a whole lot here. Uh, so, so tell me this. You made the comment that in the first month of life, babies lack the capacity to stop crying. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, this is uh, uh, other people's research I'm referring to, Jim McKenna. Who's, oh, uh-huh. Also at Notre Dame. (laughs) Also at Notre Dame and known for research on co-sleeping and an advocate of it, uh, safe sleeping. Um, He has pointed out that the capacity, just like when a child's in the high chair and they keep dropping things, you know, you pick it up. They haven't, uh, they they know how to drop, but they don't know how to pick up maybe, or they just, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. They've just learned how to drop. They've just learned how to let go of things, and so they keep practicing that. But they don't have that. If you uh, hang on to a baby's finger, you know, when they're born, the first month, they won't let go, right? They don't know yet how to let go. And so there's different systems that are still developing, and one of them apparently is that they don't know how to stop crying once they start. So it's kind of a little bit like a wind-up toy. Once once it starts it sort of automatically continues? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Wow. So they, they don't have the capacity yet to, I mean, their prefrontal cortex, the front part of the brain is a lot of control systems that are still being set up. I mean, they don't get finished till maybe age 35, we think now. So, <laughs> wow. uh, long time, but uh, yeah. So yeah. You, again, the parent is helping, the, is the external regulator. 
So you're helping that baby practice self-regulation. So what do you want them to practice is the question. Right. Uh, you would certainly want them to, yeah, uh, well, practice the kinds of things here that you have just said. I'm quoting now from your blog. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But you said, to grow well babies need, and you listed, I don't know, six things here, one, two, three, four, five things, nearly constant positive touch and and you said, and movement. So I presume that that's like swaying or jiggling or those kinds of things, yes? Yeah. Uh, Mimicking the womb? Yes, right. Uh-huh. So uh, just being carried around while mother or father's hunting and gathering, well, gathering. Uh, oh, yeah. So that's, okay. just, we evolved, to, I mean, we've spent so many uh, eons in that kind of state. That's what the brain is expecting. Uh-huh. Uh, you also said no negative touch, responsiveness to their cues. Boy, that's another, another whole show. Uh, multiple adult caregivers and ideally breastfeeding on, requ- on request, which contains the calming chemicals. Wow, all of this is fascinating. For those of you who are wondering, uh, when we come back, I will be talking with Dr. Narvaez about uh, the morality aspect of primal parenting. Don't go away. Really exciting stuff. We'll be right back after this short break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Nuru Pocket is a newborn carrier specifically designed for skin-to-skin contact, affording mom full coverage and hands-free mobility while giving and receiving all the physiological benefits of kangaroo care. Our unique fabric is super soft, breathable, moisture-wicking, and it offers just the right amount of compression fit to ensure proper position and continued support. Hospitals and NICUs are implementing the new Roo Pocket for inpatient use to increase time spent skin to skin, as well as help improve breastfeeding scores and infant safety. Learn more at NewRooBaby.com. That's N-U-R-O-O-Baby.com. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed. I'm here today with Notre Dame professor and well-accomplished author, uh, Dr. Darsha Narvaez. Before we went to break, uh, we were talking about crying and uh, at the break, 
she and I were talking a little bit about cortisol. And of course, I have to chuckle a little bit because I had a stressful day. I had a gazillion things to do. And I knew I had the show tonight. And I took out of the office and I said to my staff, all right, I'm going over to the Y to burn off some of my cortisol because I just had such a stressful day. Um, you mentioned this to me, and we've talked a little bit about it on, on the show, but can you summarize a little bit about how this cortisol works into this whole idea of primal parenting or lack thereof? Lack thereof, really. Well, let me uh, uh, tie it to crying. So when you let the baby cry, for uh, especially if it goes on for very long, cortisol starts to flood the brain, and cortisol kills off synapses. It changes gene expression. Uh, and so what's supposed to be happening in the early months and years of a child's life is they're supposed to be growing all these pro-social networks in their brain so that they can get along well with others, you know, and cooperate and read signals and be emotionally expressive in the right way. But when you uh, flood the brain with cortisol, you're, you're actually not only preventing those synapses and those networks from growing, you're killing off what synapses and networks there, there, that are there already. So you're you're decrease, going to de- decrease intelligence, including emotional intelligence. This is just fascinating. I, I mean, even as a nurse, I'm thinking, how many kids have I left crying in the nursery while I'm, you know, having a cup of coffee or something? I don't think I did that a lot, but <laughs> now I'm thinking uh, th- that really has way further reaching com- uh Uh, consequences than I ever could have imagined. You talk about the interaction between implicit and explicit processes in moral function. Uh, Can I break this down to two things? First of all, how do you define morality? And second, what does this implicit-explicit thing mean? Mm. Well, morality is a humongous topic, as you know. I write books about it. So... (laughs) For me, morality has to do with being, uh, when you're optimally moral, you are emotionally present in the moment and you're agile in in response to the other and you have a very large communal imagination. You're you're taking Mm. into account your effects Mm. on others, but that means humans, not only the ones in front of you, but the ones that aren't in front of you, but also the non-human well-being, the other than human beings. So this is a big, big definition. It t- you know t- took me 450 pages to describe it all. So, well, anyway. I felt it was important to establish that before we heard about how the process works. So I think that's a good definition. I'm good with okay. that. Okay. All right. So um, what happens when things go wrong, though, and this is what I argue why we have to care for babies well, is that you don't have this orientation of openness. You end up having you go into personal distress easily with others because your vagus nerve doesn't work so well your stress response system kicks in too early you see threat everywhere and so then you become when necessarily focused on yourself because when the blood when the stress response kicks in the blood flow shifts in your body to mobilize you for survival and so that's what happens we we become more self-centered more focused on what we want because we we've lost our I mean, we've shifted into that kind of mode. Um, so I'm forgetting what your other question was. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, that that no, you were you were good, Darsha. You got it. It was. <laughs> uh, I wanted to define the morality and then talk about those processes. Well, uh, that's the implicit things that happen then, because you're conditioned to be stressed by you know whatever it is that you wherever you see threat, 
And so implicitly, subconsciously, that means you get shifted over to self-protection. You don't know that your blood flow is shifting necessarily, but it does. And you're not open or receptive. Your intelligence is no longer receptive. It's uh, autistic in a way. Hmm. I have heard that children's sense of morality is pretty much complete by about seven years old. Is that truth or myth? No, it's not true. Okay. It, there's always, uh, you can always grow. Remember, the brain is largely plastic, although we don't know how much. We don't know if you can shift your neurotransmitter systems or immune system, uh, which is very established in the first years of life. Uh, but we know that you can uh, self-author, what I, uh, you can self-grow into new ways of perceiving and thinking and shift yourself into what this is an engagement, relational attunement orientation out of that self-protection. But it takes some effort. Uh, It's much easier to build it from the ground up instead of later when you're an adult trying to calm yourself down and try to, you know, connect to others uh, and think communally. It takes a lot more effort if if you were grown um, in a way to be self-protective. In hunter-gatherer, uh, societies, would you say that there is less, the only word I have for it is divorce. I don't know what they call it, but is it more likely for the parents to stay with each other? Well, this is a tough uh, uh, issue because they don't marry at all. Right. It's, okay. They don't have institutions. Uh, everyone comes and goes as they please. There's no punishment or coercion of anybody. Parents don't do that to their children. Adults don't do it to children. There's no punishment uh, unless somebody gets crazy um, and kills somebody or something, but that's a rare thing. Uh, so it, it's really hard to, to set up parallel kinds of things. All I was thinking was when you talked about morality, I was th- hearing a big message about how <sighs> the baby becomes the adult who becomes able to put somebody else's needs ahead of his own. Did I get that message pretty much right? Yeah, and and the needs go together. My needs are like your needs. They're not in opposition in these mm. societies. So we think it's always one or the other. You always okay. you know, give in and then you have to give up and sacrifice. Yeah. Well, they, they don't work that way, so... Um, but okay. one thing to point out, though, is in these societies, everyone... All children are everyone's children. They don't think think about ownership of a child or you know who the father is. They know who the mother is, but they don't necessarily care who the father is. And so it's it's a very different worldview, and it's hard for us to get our heads around it. It's much more relaxed and trusting of the natural world. Things will be provided, uh, and you don't worry about tomorrow so much. That kind of thing. So, as I. I'm hearing you talk, too, about things like crying, although I'm sure there are other issues. Uh, I'm also thinking of a previous guest that we had, and she talked about marriages breaking up because the parents didn't agree about what to feed the baby, even as the baby became a toddler or a preschooler or whatever. Then she was talking about picky eaters. But anyway, uh, I'm thinking, so what do you do, Darsha, when you've got a mother who wants to do this whole zero separation and don't let the baby cry it out and all of those things? And the father says, look it, you know, this is a bunch of baloney. I don't go for this. How would you help? the other parent to understand 
Uh, what would you say? I, I mean, I'm in this boat a lot of times. I find that the mother tends to be the one who wants to do more of the nurturing. And the father isn't always on board with that idea. What, what, yeah. what explanation or help would you give to that parent? Yeah, I know. I hear, but I hear from parents, too, about these things. Yeah. So, um, sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah. yeah. I, I would recommend that the parent who's a little less oriented to, to nurturing carry that child, the baby, skin to skin for a day or two. And I think that will shift them. Wow, that's very interesting. You're saying that there's really no amount of explanation that will do the job, but that experiential uh, activity is that's a right. game changer? Yeah, oh, I think sometimes uh, information helps, but if they're really uh-huh. rigid and um, sometimes they have to have the experience. Uh-huh. Um, how uh, the whole you'll spoil that baby in just some simple terms, I, I know you've written books on this, but do you have some sound bites that would help parents? Because sometimes I hear the grandmother say, you're going to spoil that baby. Put that baby down. She's fine. Uh, how can the parent respond to the person who's criticizing her for having this contact with the baby, really? Yeah. Well, the first thing is you can't spoil a baby. Yeah. So, and the second thing is, uh, babies, again, should be in the womb another 18 months. So, wait till he's 18 months and then talk to me about that. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you mentioned about the spoiling the baby, and this is what I've said to parents. Please tell me if I'm wrong. But I usually tell parents that an infant, certainly a newborn, but an infant or possibly even an older child, really isn't smart enough to manipulate the parent. They're just trying to get their own need met. Um, and this is their way of communicating. Is there a better thing that I can say to that parent other than, you know, the baby really doesn't have the capacity to manipulate you into spoiling him. Is there a better way to put that? No, I think that's, uh, I like that. And I think that is helpful for some parents, but it might need they might need to, uh, again, carry them skin to skin mm-hmm. and realize how fragile that child is uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in many ways. I mean, they're robust, but they're also fragile. Uh, and then there's some combination of information about how fragile they are, how they don't have uh, mental capacities to manipulate anybody. They're just responding to their needs and they're in pain when they are getting uncomfortable or crying. Uh, that's a sign of pain. And something needs to be done or else they're practicing being in pain and they're practicing stress response and they're just going to be a less pleasant person as a result and probably not very healthy if you let it go on this way. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of the times when I have said to the baby but in front of the parent, honey, what's wrong? You don't seem hungry. Maybe you're just lonely. And usually the parent kind of chuckles. Yeah. But, it, I mean, is that an oversimplification? Don't you think that babies just need some human contact? Is that idea of baby is just lonely, is that more or less right? Yes, no, I, I, I agree with you. Yes, the baby's lonely. <laughs> they expect to be on somebody all the time. And so when they're not, I mean, they don't know loneliness either. They just feel pain, right? They don't feel right, and they're letting you know. 
So I've done that too with a baby crying in the, like the grocery store in a, in a, um, and left alone while parents are walking around. And I say, oh, baby, that's all right. Your parents love you. You'll be all right in a moment. Don't worry, you know, and try to, you know, be that companion to the baby. I'd love to pick the baby up, but you can't really do that. Uh, yeah, grocery store and <laughs> you being a stranger. Yeah, that kind of doesn't work. <laughs> that kind of doesn't work. Um, it alerts the parents. It alerts the parents like you were doing, right? Alerts them to the needs of the baby. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that parents think that when babies cry that they are hungry, which is possible, or that they're wet, which is possible, or that they have a burp or some gas, and that's possible. But I really do believe that there are times when babies are what I've for years just called just lonely, and you pick them up and they stop crying. To me, in and I don't know all this psychology stuff, I just know that it works <laughs> when you pick the baby up. Yeah, I had a student who was at a family party and there was a baby no one could comfort. He picked the baby up because he had uh, learned uh, um, about parenting in, with me. Uh, he picked the baby up and just held the baby against his neck because that was the only exposed skin he had, and the child stopped crying. Wow. wow. <laughs> but I think what we have to do is help parents shift the baseline. What's the baseline? Ooh. What's normal for a baby? Well, Love it's that. for the baby to be in the parent's arms. And when the baby is not on somebody's body, you should expect the baby to be mad or angry or sad or crying. So shift the baseline back to what's normal for baby to grow well. I just wrote that down in big capital letters. Shift the baseline. I love it. Uh, hey, everybody. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with um, Dr. Darsha Narvaez, and we will be right back after this short break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash good donor. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso, your host for Born to be Breastfed. I'm here today with Dr. Darsha Narvaez, who is talking to us about primal parenting. Dr. Narvaez, what is sleep training? Well, uh, people mean different things when they use that term. Uh, often, uh, the worst case scenario of it is what's called cry it out, cry it to extinction uh, mm -hmm. training, where you just let the baby cry themselves to sleep. Uh, or just leave them crying for how many hours it takes and leaving them alone all night, for example. 
Uh, it's not a good thing. As obviously, as we mentioned earlier, cortisol will be flooding the baby's brain and killing off synapses and changing gene expression. So that would be the worst case scenario. Right. But there are, I think you're saying degrees of it. Right. And I, I think uh, the research on it is very shoddy, at least what gets uh, published in the journal Pediatrics. Uh, oh, uh-huh. Complains several of us who know better. Uh, to the journal that they shouldn't be publishing these things because the uh, they're very misleading and the doctors don't have time to read the article to notice how poorly they're done. They just read the abstract and then the abstract says, oh, yeah, we told the parents to sleep train and we don't know if they did or what they did. And then we had this other group, we didn't tell them to do anything. And then we co- compared, you know, some one outcome five years later, well, no difference. Sleep training's fine for everybody. Crazy, mm. crazy. So uh, sleep training can be you know, um, controlled crying where you have uh, the baby uh, alone and then if they cry, you go in and maybe touch them or you're in the room with them or, you know, you avoid, I don't know. There's various techniques that are used. Uh, I, on a regular basis, talk to parents or to professionals about breastfeeding and believe me, the sleep-wakefulness continuum is always part of the discussion. So I don't think that it's very realistic for uh young infants to be sleeping, quote, through the night. I think that they can have a long stretch. But what, in your opinion, and by the way, I've read those studies in pediatrics, and I hope I don't have abstractitis, but now that you're talking about it, I promise I'll be more careful. Uh, If you were standing at the front of the room teaching a bunch of breastfeeding advocates about, or breastfeeding parents, about sleep, sleep cycles, sleep training, sleep anything, what would be the most important message to deliver? Know what the baseline is. The baseline is that baby and mother sleep together breastfeeding through the night. And in that kind of circumstance, the mother sleeps safely. Uh, The baby uh, is feeding on on request or at will through the night. The mother doesn't have to wake up all the way uh, or get out of bed or anything because they're right there together. And the the mother doesn't roll on the child, not unless, you know, under normal circumstances. So that's the normal baseline for babies. Now, if you do anything different, you should expect problems. Wow. Uh, that was pretty succinct, Darsha. <laughs> I know. I know we don't have much time left. So. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I'm thinking uh, I'm desperately grabbing for it here, and I can't reach uh, Jim McKenna's book. But for those of you who haven't picked it up, you should have it. Uh, it's Dr. James McKenna. And uh, I believe the title of his book is Co-Sleeping with Your Baby. And if you don't have a copy of that, you should. Uh, what would you say to the parent who says, look, you know, this is not realistic for me. I've, I work full time. I, I can't have this baby going to bed with me at night. What would you say to that parent? Well, you can have the baby nearby in one of those attachments to your bed. And you can have, um, uh, well, this brings up the issue of parental leave. Uh, We really need that in this country, like other advanced nations. They provide parental leave for at least a year so that you can, you know, adjust and get, you know, give the baby what it needs or he or she needs. But but that doesn't help the parent that has to go back to work at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. So what, uh, how would you help her to understand this baseline that you're suggesting then? Well, again, this goes back to, uh, I'm sorry, this is going to, Sounds sound judgmental, but if you're going to have a baby, you need to give time to the baby. Yeah, and yeah. and you know, one person stays home. 
to be with the baby so you can adjust. Babies are not plants. They're not, you know, little machines. They need certain uh, treatment, and if they don't get it, they're not going to turn out so well. And you should not be surprised. To my knowledge, we don't have any evidence that shows that co-sleeping deprives the parent of sleep. Are you aware of any such evidence? No, I, uh, my understanding is that when you uh, formula feed, that's how, when you get worse right, sleep right. because you have to get up. If you do it properly, my students have measured how much time it takes to make a proper formula bottle. It takes about 30 minutes if you're going to heat the, you know, scald it or whatever, uh, sterilize everything and do it properly. No parent wants to do that, so then they they start to use cold water, or not, not sterilized equipment, and then they're putting their baby at risk for other things. Well, and I also say you've got to be fully awake to do that. Quite honestly, when you're breastfeeding, you can still be in that sort of light uh, uh, state where you're not fully awake and you're more likely to uh, go back to sleep. So tell us this, Dr. Narvaez, where can we find your blog? Repeat the name of your most recent book and tell us if there's another book that we should be looking for. The blog is Moral Landscapes at Psychology Today, so it's just uh, Google my name in Psychology Today or Moral Landscapes in Psychology Today. The book, uh, most recent book, is The Neurobiology of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom. Uh, So it talks about all the neurobiological stuff of early development and how that affects well-being and morality. And then I am working on some parenting books, so... Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Try Excellent. To, you know, regular people's, uh, instead of these academic minds, we want yeah. to reach those who are in the trenches with the babies. Yeah, we definitely need this. Uh, I, I need to be able to have a book that I can say, go read the book by Dr. Narvaez, the way I say, go read the book by Dr. McKenna. Well, yes. this has been a great, great session. Uh, that's all the time that we have today. I'd like to thank Dr. Darsha Narvaez for being with us today. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to Born to be Breastfed. I'd like to invite you all to come back next week. And if you're interested in the books or other media that was mentioned on this show or even on previous shows, check out our Amazon store. How do you do that? Well, my website is borntobebreastfed.com. And you will see right there that we will uh, this week be featuring her book, And uh, others will be there as well. Please drop by our Facebook page. You're welcome to leave a question for me or for Dr. Narvaez or any of our previous guests. And by the way, remember to like us while you're there. Now, if you're a professional and you're looking for continuing education about breastfeeding and lactation, remember I'm your source for evidence-based practice on the web and sometimes in your city. My course uh, and tons of resources are on my blog at my professional site, breastfeedingoutlook.com. Again, that's breastfeedingoutlook.com. I'm Marie Biancuto. I promise I'll help you to cut through the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding next Monday, same time, same channel. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.